Hello and welcome to another episode of our Brothers Creed podcast. We're talking about motivation, experiences, and exploring the world around us. We are the Thomas Brothers, and I'm Jared. I'm Ethan, and today we're going to be talking about famous court cases throughout history. Uh, currently, there's a major court case going on right now between uh, uh, Johnny Depp and what's the herd lady's name? Is it Lisa Heard? Mm, Miss Amber Miss Heard. Amber Heard. Yeah, Amber Heard, yeah. yeah. And so uh, it just kind of inspired us a little bit to where let's look at some of these uh, kind of famous court cases throughout history, you know, all the way back way, way, way long time ago, maybe to uh, things a little bit more, yeah, little and more it, current. I think these court cases can shape, they can shape law. They can also just shape pop culture. Uh, and, I mean, I remember back Michael Jackson's court case, yeah. you know, and I remember... A little bit of O.J. Simpson, but I was little, and then you know, Kyle Rittenhouse was a major one, and, and some of these other ones that have gone through. So, uh, you know, Zimmerman that was uh, certainly one that I remember. Yeah, it's really interesting how uh, even just m- in modern day that everything it's so publicized. You yeah. know, it's like live on TV, and even nowadays with social media and everything else. I mean, you're just flipping through social media, and the the case is on. It's just there's yeah. there's live stream into the courtroom, and you can see everything that's going on. It's yeah. almost like watching a long movie. Well, something. one of the ones I'm going to talk about today is the Ted Bundy case, and that was in 1979, and that was the first televised, nationally televised uh, court case. Ooh, nice. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive into it. Let's do it. Spartans, what is your profession? Any man who must say I am the king is no true king. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare. If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change! Let us all unite! Let us fight for a new world! A decent world! All right, so we've got uh, several court cases here for you. One of the ones that I thought was so interesting... uh, uh, was and this is going back way back. So some people might say, "Oh, this is just you know drama, or these court cases are just um, you know you could say it's just like gossip or whatever." But I think that these court cases can shape society. Uh, going back, the trial of Socrates, or as I was joking with Ethan earlier, earlier, Socrates, as Bill and Ted, it's an excellent adventure would say. Um, so. Uh, as many people know, Socrates was in uh, Athens, and he would go about talking to people, asking questions, and proposing different things, and, and, and talking philosophy, and all kinds of different stuff. And people got pretty tired of that, and so they eventually tried him for uh, two things. Uh, one was uh, impiety, which w- it was basically refusing to recognize gods of the state and creating his own, uh, and then corruption, corrupting the youth, because he would always talk with the youth. Uh, if you think about it, I, I just had this revelation. Court cases, this is a sidebar from Socrates. <laughs> I mean, look at Christ's trial. I mean, we're just, we're just a few weeks after Easter here. Look at, you know, Christ was on trial. Uh, trials are really where the entire justice system comes in and someone is weighed and measured and... Uh, and found wanting. Possibly, yeah. So uh, th- that's why in a democratic society where we have 
this Lady Justice who weighs the, the, the evidence and then justice and murder. Uh, let's see. Lady Justice, on the scale that she has, isn't it justice and mercy? Isn't yes. that what she's yeah. weighing in? Yeah. So uh, it's very, th- this type of a thing goes all the way back to the time of Jesus and then before that too. So, Well, I like what we're talking about too is that we're talking about a lot of these things are televised and, and they're they're out in the open, which is really different than right, Christ trial, right? It was kind of well, actually, in the dark and it I was w- at night. Well, and, I would say actually no. Uh, because remember when he brought him before everybody says behold the man and then he says who would you want to release I guess Barbaras the, or, or yeah. Christ and they started chanting you know release the the murderer release yeah. Barbaras and so that was very public the entire well I the, guess the questioning the I guess the, the 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 personal questioning was more yeah you know in the dark but yeah in it, that case and, the people demanded Christ be yeah so I, I think that but some some things are done he was judged know. by a jury of his peers yeah well interesting so in this uh trial of socrates the way that they typically prepared for the trial uh there was typically there was 501 men were called to judge him uh and that was typical of the time uh that's a lot yeah it is a lot and so i'll talk later about how the trial ended up but one of the things i want to talk about is some of the reasons why they might have hated socrates uh first one was his association with a guy named Alcibiades. Uh, I'll just call him Al because his name is very hard to pronounce. So Al was an Athenian general later in his life, but he had earlier in his life he had served with Socrates uh, in the armed forces and they had been uh, messmates um, and they were close friends over the years. So later in uh, Al's life he became a general in the Athenian army and he led a disastrous campaign during the... Uh, Pelo, uh, Pelop- Peloponnesian uh, War, uh, that was hard to pronounce, uh, that ended up getting 50,000 soldiers, soldiers and non-combatants, Athenians, killed. So he was like leading this campaign. 50,000 people died because of his failure. Uh, they were either killed, captured, or enslaved. Um, he later uh, defected to Sparta, which was an enemy of Athens, and get this, he eventually had an affair with the king of Sparta's wife. And then so he fled Sparta back to Athens, and it was just a whole disaster. Everybody hated him, and then he eventually was killed. Uh, so they were like, well, Socrates poisoned his mind, and that's why he was such a failure, and he embarrassed the Athenian government. He killed all these people because he was poisoned by Socrates. Socrates' fault. Yeah, another reason was there was a group of folks called the 30 tyrants. Uh, these were kind of political puppets of Sparta that were ruthless. They were in Athens, but they were like ruthless leaders. And they eventually got overthrown, but many of them were uh, kind of, st- you could call them students of Socrates. Uh, eventually, they said that Socrates and them did have a falling out, uh, but they said, well, look, he's conspiring with these 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 animals. These They were trying, these ruthless animals that were, Pawns or spies of Sparta. Uh, and then there were also times that he would criticize democracy itself. Uh, the most prominent criticism that he had or view was that it's that it is not majority opinion that yields correct policy, but rather genuine knowledge and professional competence, which is possessed by only a few. 
So his idea was that the elite or the, the enlightened who actually knew what was going on should make decisions and not the populace, which you could argue both. You, you could easily argue yeah. both ways. I mean, I would, I do hope also that we have some competent people leading uh, the charge. But what if you get Anthony Fauci in there and he's just saying all this stuff because he's motivated on his own. He's got his own motivations, you know. So there's there's definitely a give and take uh, when it comes to some of these things. Even in the United States, we'll set up a, a, a health czar or these, we will call them czars and the, you're, you're in charge of this uh, initiative or whatever. Um, so I think that, that a lot of that comes from there. Put someone in charge that knows what they're doing and that is wiser than the masses. So they didn't like to hear that because they were all about democracy. So when they prepared for the trial, they told him, you better prepare for the trial or you're going to be put to death. Uh, and he said he wasn't going to prepare a defense for the trial. Uh, he would say over his lifetime that as when he would speak, there was a voice inside him that would tell him uh, to, that would come up and say, don't do that. Or, or do this instead. And so if he was speaking and, he, and the voice said, don't do that, then he would just stop talking or, or stop saying that thing. And he said that he kept hearing this. The, it wasn't like a schizophrenic voice, but hearing, maybe you could you could call it uh, his internal conscience dialogue or, or conscience that said, like, don't prepare for it. Like, you just just uh, go in there and, uh, you know, come what may kind of a thing. Uh, he actually concluded... One of the conclusions that many people believe is that he was like, you know what? I'm an old guy. I may as well walk off this world on my own terms uh, and live authentically than uh, defend myself and and renege on some of these things that I have said uh, and live unauthentically. So the trial itself, like I said, the jury was made up of 501 men. Imagine how many people people had to take off work to go that day. Uh, So very public trial. Uh, Plato, who was a student of Socrates, said that if just 30 of the votes had been otherwise, then Socrates would have been acquitted, and perhaps less than three-fifths of the jury voted against him. So, assuming the jury was 501 people, this would imply that he was convicted by a majority of 280 against 221. So, That's pretty close. Yeah, very close. And uh, it's it's in- interesting oh, this the, the second part here. They uh, the punishment. So Socrates and the prosecution were allowed to suggest. So once he was found guilty, the prosecution and the po- and Socrates were allowed to suggest a punishment. And Socrates says, uh, "I suggest three fee- three free meals at the." Pritinium, which is the city's hearth, a, a place where they would feed like an Olympic Olympic winner or like a dignitary or an honored guest. He's like, I think you know, three females, three free meals at the country club, and then they're like, uh, no. And he's like, okay, uh, how about I give you two free meals at the country club, <laughs> one fifth of his property, which was like a hundred uh, drachmia, which is basically nothing, uh, and the, and they were like, hmm. I don't know about that. And then Plato and others of his students came together and were like, okay, well, we'll actually offer 3,000 uh, drachmia. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. D-R-A-C-H-M-E-A. Drachmia. Drachmia. Uh, they offered 3,000 for the punishment instead, but and they said, we'll guarantee it, but uh, the defense suggested the death penalty, 
and that's what was ultimately passed down. And so a little bit more about the death in the event in the event at his death, his friends and followers and students suggested that he flee Athens, an action which the citizens basically expected. Yet on principle, Socrates refused to flout the law and escape his legal responsibility to Athens. Therefore, faithful to his teachings of civic obedience to the law, the 70-year-old Socrates executed his death sentence and drank the hemlock as condemned at trial. So, And there was an article that was published later on in 2009 called Why Socrates Died, Dispelling the Myths by Robin Waterfield. And I thought he had an interesting insight. He said, The death of Socrates was an act of volition motivated by a greater purpose. Socrates saw himself as a healing as healing the city's ills by his voluntary death. Waterfield wrote that Socrates, with his unconventional methods of intellectual inquiry, attempted to resolve the political confusion then occurring in the city-state of Athens by willingly being the scapegoat whose death would quiet old disputes, which then would allow the Athenian pol- police, or the people, population, to progress towards political harmony and social peace. So he almost like martyred himself. Yeah, that's it. that's one opinion that he... <sighs> or sacrificed, sacrificed himself, himself for, for, the peace for the greater good. Because he was just, okay, I'll be the scapegoat. Uh, or as Michael Scott says, the escape goat. <laughs> <laughs> the escaped goat. Yeah. And yeah. So, the uh, what are the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Yeah. So I was. Uh, that was basically the trial. You know, he he really went and uh, he knew that he was gonna ha- be done, and he kind of lived his true self all the way to the end. So I think that's really cool, and that's one of our first main big trials that we see uh, in history that has lasted. All the way to this day. Yeah. Interesting. That's pretty cool. Uh, I mean, just to have the, I don't know, have the, have the confidence or the gall within you to just kind of stand up and be like, you know, come what may. I know this thing is kind of a, a joke anyway, but I'm just going to, out of principle, I'm going to just yeah. go through with it, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, live. it's it's better to live by your principles, uh, die by your principles than live having given them up. Yeah. That's definitely true. That's part of your creed. Incorporate that into your creed. <laughs> Write it down. Um, so the next story is maybe not so admirable, right? So um, the next story is about a man named Orenthal James Simpson or Orange Juice Simpson, <laughs> Mr. OJ himself. <laughs> Right, so juice. O- they called him Juice, right? Yeah, so O.J. Simpson, uh, they called him Juice, was his nickname. Uh, he was a football player. He was a running back. Uh, he was a broadcaster. He was an actor, and he did tons of uh, advertising. He was a spokesman for like a bunch of different advertising things. And so he was pretty famous, right? So uh, the trial of, of, of O.J. Simpson, this was in the... Uh, 1994 and 1995, uh, throughout those two years where uh, this, let's say, incident happened. So the incident was um, a, uh, he was accused of murdering Nicole Brown, who was his ex-wife at the time, and her friend, uh, Ron Goldman. So uh, he met... um, 
OJ met Nicole Brown at a uh, nightclub, kind of a swanky private bar nightclub in Beverly Hills in 1977. Uh, at this time, OJ was actually married to his first wife, um, who he was still married to for about another two years while he dated uh, Nicole Brown. Mm-hmm. So he was cheating on his wife with Nicole Brown. Yeah. Uh, and so they dated for two years, and then finally after two years, he divorced um, his first wife. And um, six years later, in 1985, so six years after he divorced his first wife, they were still, Nicole and Brown and, and OJ were still in a relationship, and, and six years later they got they got married. Um, and, they, and this was in 1985, they got married, and they were married for seven years until 1992. In 1992, O.J. and Nicole Brown got divorced. Um, O.J. was said to be very controlling, uh, emotionally abusive, and he had had quite a few, you know, several affairs throughout their marriage, which I'm not going to say is surprising because of how (laughs) their their, their marriage marriage started. But, uh, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, So this kind of all accumulated and resulted in their divorce. Nicole kind of moved on and later started uh, dating, and it was said that OJ uh, would would follow her and her boyfriends, the people who she was dating, that he would confront them on the streets, and there are several accounts of him you know, confronting them, her and her boyfriend at restaurants, and there's even a, an incident where he was accused of the, the neighbor caught him spying on like peeping Tom in her window while she was being intimate with one of her boyfriends and there's all this different kind of stuff, you know, some of it's rumors, some of it's, you know, obviously true. I I don't know. I'll let you decide. (laughs) Um, so in, uh, on June 13th, 1944. So this was two years after they got divorced. 94, 1994. What'd I say? I said 44. Oh, 1994. So this is two years after they got divorced. So June 13th of 1994, Nicole Brown and her friend Ron Goldman at 12.10 a.m. in the morning were found dead outside Nicole's condo in Los Angeles. So there was a guy that died too. Yeah. I thought it was just her. Yeah. So um, the next day on June 14th, OJ was charged with two accounts of murder. The next day, and he's he was uh, uh, basically they they try to get a uh, they tried to get a hold of him. They tried to charge him with him, and they were trying to arrest him. Right there was a warrant out for his arrest. Well, following the accusations and the charges, uh, he tried to escape the police in a white Bronco Ford Bronco, right? The yep. infamous Bronco down the four hundred five chase police chase, yeah, right or the uh, yeah, I think it was the four hundred five to the five. Um, and it was a, a low-speed, what they called it, low-speed chase uh, happened throughout the streets of L.A. and the interstate there in L.A., uh, in Orange County area, that went on for several hours. Um, the whole thing was broadcasted live on TV. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the videos of the white Bronco going down the interstate and the helicopters and everybody. So uh, it lasted for several hours until finally O.J. surrendered. Um so, 
there's kind of this big gap between when he surrendered to when kind of trials actually started. And it was about a year. So this was, uh, well, that's not exactly true. The whole thing lasted about a year and a half. But so that was the, the middle of June. So after he surrendered and everything, I, I, I'm sure he probably maybe posted bail to a certain extent. I, I couldn't get tons of information on that. But one month later, on June 22nd, OJ uh, responded publicly to the accusations or whatever, and he, uh, he pleaded and said, quote, uh, I am absolutely 100% not guilty. That was his quote. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, then why did you? Why do you? Why was you running? Why, <laughs> then why were you running? So that was uh, July twenty second of the same year, November third. Um, Judge Lance Ito in California was assigned to the case, and then a jury was selected. That was November third, January twenty third of the next year, so nineteen ninety five. Opening statements started on the court case. Uh, the jury was comprised of uh, four men and eight women. Eight were black, one was Hispanic, one was white, and two were mixed race. So, kind of interesting. Um, huh. On February 6th, Nicole Brown's older sister got on the stand and testified that uh, her sister was being abused, that Nicole was being abused by O.J. Even after the divorce? Even after the, the divorce, during the divorce, and even after the divorce. Um, maybe it was more uh, from an emotional standpoint, but, I mean, he was obviously stalking her and uh, everything else. So on February 7th, a neighbor testified that he heard... Nicole's dog whimpering and whining and kind of wailing is how he described it uh, near the outside of her house or her condo around 10:15 at night, which was around the estimated time of when the murders happened. How did they get killed, or what was what was the cause of death? So, uh, mostly it was stabbing. Okay. Um, and some some blunt force trauma uh, huh. to a certain extent. So. Um, there was on March 8th, and this is kind of the, obviously the, the, the cases just keep going and going and going, you know, January, February, March, April, May, June. And so now we're in March, right? A DNA lab linked DNA evidence from the crime scene to OJ's DNA. And so they're going through this, uh, on March 9th, 9th, the detectives stated that they found bloody gloves right? The infamous gloves. Yeah. They found, I didn't know this, but they found one glove at the crime scene. And then they found the matching glove or its pair at OJ's house. Really? Yeah. Well, someone must have been trying to frame him, of course. So, um, on, uh, Later on in, in March as well, there was a house guest that was one of OJ's, I guess, friends or acquaintances or whatever. He's staying at OJ's house, and he said that the last time he saw OJ that night was about 9.30, and they were estimated to have been killed about 10.15. So he saw him at 9.30, and he said that he was not happy with Nicole, and then he was kind of 
upset with her that day. Um, OJ's limo driver also was on the stand, and he said that he was trying to get a hold of OJ and, and knocking on the door and pounding on the door and was kind of waiting for him or whatever else, and that he didn't even find him at his house until uh, around 11 o'clock. And so he must have been out and about. Hmm. He didn't answer his door until 11 o'clock. Um, the night of the murder. And so uh, on June, this keeps going, that was March, April, May, June, um, the coroner gave a very detailed description of the murders with uh, with pictures and everything else. Supposedly it was, it was very, very gruesome. Um, and later that month on July 24th, there was a forensic toxicologist that was giving testimony. And he said that he found evidence that there was a blood blood preservation chemicals in two of the pieces of evidence that were being used at the crime. And so this indicated that it's possible that the police may have planted evidence or that they may they may have gotten some of OJ's blood somehow or her blood somehow. And in order to, to to preserve it, they put some sort of preservative chemical in the blood, uh-huh. and then maybe pulled that, you know, poured that on the glove or poured that on somewhere else or whatever. This is like a, a so, Avery, uh, yeah. It, so it's like, yeah, Steve, like Stephen Avery. Avery you know, there's case. a little, there's a drop of her blood in the back of the car, and yeah. it's like, oh well, yeah, questionable. So, um, there was uh, later on that a different forensic uh, scientist testified that there were three separate separate footprints at the crime scene and that not a single one of them matched OJ's, right? So it, it's kind of going both ways, right? And so um, there was another one. There was uh, one of the, the main detective that really wanted to nail OJ for this. Uh, he, he was the whole time, he was just harping, 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 harping on him. And... Um, there was a, a recorded interview between this detective and, and some other uh, some other people, another detective, and he really wanted OJ to be guilty. And it was interesting because during this uh, during this interview, this detective, uh, suppo- well, I'm not even gonna say supposedly, he used the N word forty one times in this interview. In an interview, in, in an interview that was played in court. Oh my gosh! Forty-one times. I mean, talk about prejudice. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. And so they put that same. I'm sure that the all almost all black jury didn't like the, that at all. Oh yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. So they put him on the stand and they asked him three questions. The, this is the detective. The first question was, they asked him. Was your testimony at the beginning of this case completely truthful? Okay, that was the first question. The second question they asked him is that, have you ever falsified a police report? Okay. The third question, they said, did you ever plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? I'm and sorry. on every each question, each of the three questions, he answered, I plead the fifth. Oh, really? Yeah. He took advantage of his Fifth Amendment right and didn't say anything. Plead the Fifth. Huh. Now, it's not a crime to plead the Fifth, 
but it's kind of sketchy. Yeah, it's like right? when you, especially when you're like asking, when they're asking those the IRS, specific questions. Are you targeting people that uh, are conservative groups? Oh, we plead the fifth. That's yeah, exactly what they seriously. did. Yeah. Um, so uh, the prosecution. Okay, so this is where the infamous gloves come in. Come in, right? So there's some couple interesting facts around this, but the prosecution. So the people that were were prosecuting OJ, trying to get him uh, on this this murder charges. Uh, they had him try on the gloves that were found. One was at the crime scene, and one was at the house, at his house. So they, uh, you know, he he tried to put the glove on in court. Um, but unfortunately, this was kind of one of their considered one of their largest mistakes of the whole trial is having him try to put these gloves on. Well, the gloves didn't fit. If the gloves don't fit, you must acquit. Yeah, right? and so that's when Johnny Cochran was his lawyer, right? And that's when the famous Kardashian. Yeah, well, he he was kind of a lifelong friend and business business oh. partner, but he was involved in the whole thing as well. And Johnny, that's when Johnny Cochran said, "If it doesn't fit, you must acquit." Yep, that's what he said in the courtroom, and he said that over and over. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. He kept saying that, and all this closing stuff. The glove doesn't fit, uh-huh. and. uh so on October 6th of 1995, the verdict of not guilty was given uh, and OJ was set free. So Yeah, interesting. Kind of interesting. So, so did they ever find out who, well, they, I'm sure they ever find out who may have done it? Or no. Just, it was just No, done. it was just, they, they said, well, he didn't do it, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so some interesting things is actually one of the jurors who was, uh, he was a black guy, and I was watching an interview on him, uh, and this was in the past several years. He um, he was th- the juror that famously, and they did this, they, they did a movie with, I think Cuba Gooding Jr. was, was OJ, and whenever they acquitted him uh, and he was set free, that while the jurors were leaving, one of the jurors, uh, kind of stood up at the door and did like an open, you know, fist in the air towards uh, black uh, kind of like black power yeah. type stuff towards. Uh, it was kind of like, hey, I, you know, we got your back. We know you didn't do it type thing to OJ. Uh-huh. Well, he kind of came out years later and was like, eh, I don't know if that was the best decision for us to make. Right. And he said to quit him to quit OJ. Yeah. To quit OJ. And. I guess it was kind of, there was a couple of things, and he he told a story about this guy. He was so stressed out and everything from the trial that he actually had like a mild heart attack, during, not during the actual trial, but like when he was at home one of the nights. Yeah. and Or over the weekend or something. And he went to the hospital, and he just spent a night in the hospital. It wasn't anything super severe, but he the, he went to the judge the next day and, and, and basically said, look, I'm out. I, I can't do this anymore. This is too stressful. It's going on for too long, too much stuff. And supposedly, um, uh, OJ's lawyer, Johnny Cochran stood up immediately and, uh, and said, Oh, what? Uh, he doesn't like football. He said, we can get him all the football tickets he wants. He wants to go to any football game. We, we, we can hook that up. He, all the jurors, they can all go to football games. Oh my gosh. Right. No way. Yeah. And he's just trying to like, bribe kind of <laughs> subtly right yeah. subtly bribe them into to doing whatever um and so one of the and and he also said oj actually wrote a book and i didn't look into the specifics of the book but he called the, the book is called if i did it confessions of a killer 
And I don't know, maybe oh if he's just gosh. trying to capitalize off of all of this or blackballed. Yeah, or whatever else. But uh, one of the most interesting things that came out of this and that, that I learned from it was OJ had rheumatoid arthritis really bad. Mm-hmm. And he was taking um, uh, rheumatoid arthritis medicine daily that would uh, help with his joints and he had massive swelling and all this different kind of stuff, uh, uh-huh. especially in his... Hands. Hands. Yeah. Right? And so when he... The day that he went to put the gloves on, uh-huh. supposedly, he hadn't been taking his rheumatoid arthritis medication, his anti-inflammation medication, uh-huh. for a couple days. So it wouldn't fit. And... So the the prosecution was saying, oh, that's why the glove isn't fitting is because his hands are all swollen because he's not taking his medication. Oh, so they called that out in the thing? Kind of, yeah, but they just kind of blew past it. And they were like, nah, you guys are just making that stuff up. Yeah. But one of the side effects of not taking this medication is swelling in the hands and joints. Oh, really? And so I don't know. Huh? Maybe, maybe not. You know, like I said before, you kind of leave it to your own devices to figure it out. But in 2008, uh, O.J. Simpson was convicted in Nevada for armed robbery, armed armed robbery and kidnapping. I think he was the armed robbery thing. I think someone was trying to buy, like, sell him like one of his rookie cards or something like that. Yeah. And he like stole it back from the guy or something. Yeah, so I, I watched a part of the him like giving a witness to a testimony in in tr- court, and he was like, "I didn't, I wasn't assaulting anybody, or I wasn't trying to steal anything. I was just trying to get back what was already mine." Yeah, is what he said. Yeah, and so I don't know, but uh, he got he got convicted of armed robbery and kidnapping, and was sentenced to at least nine years in prison. Yeah, so interesting. Crazy story. Yeah. Well, uh, that was a major one. I, I just briefly remember that one. I, I watched the first part of that Netflix show, but I uh, I just didn't get too far into it. It was, it was really slow, but uh, Ross... It's from, a long trial. Ross from Friends was the Rob Kardashian in that oh, movie yeah. show. Um, so, yeah, so the, this one I want to talk about is Ted Bundy. This is 1979. This is uh, Ted Bundy's criminal... Uh, trial was the first nationally televised trial, which was a big deal. And it, what made it even a bigger deal is that he was a siller, serial killer rapist and he was uh, representing himself uh, in the courtroom. So he was—he didn't have a lawyer. He was his own, his own lawyer because he had gone to uh, law school in the University of Utah and he was very charismatic. He was kind of a, kind of a beautiful mind type yeah, right. he, was, he was very, very smart, smart, very charismatic, uh, and he was just manipulating everybody. And so he was eventually, you know, you know, we know that he was convicted, and he was of bludgeoning and mutilating and strangling four sorority sisters in Tennessee, Florida. Uh, that's what he was eventually convicted. That, that's what this trial was about. Uh, the uh, one of the things that uh, he would make. When during his trial, he would uh, be trying to study and stuff at night. He was in jail, obviously, and he would stick wet paper towels into the keyholes of his cell so that the guards couldn't come open the door and wake up in the wake him up in the morning. 
so there's like video footage from the trial of him like arguing with the judge you know these lawyers have different conditions than I do and I'm trying to defend myself but I'm you know in this prison and they keep waking me up so so all the time and so that was kind of interesting I think he was maybe moving for a mistrial and then he actually escaped two different times uh, from uh, and then he he eventually got recaptured and one of them uh, he was being tried in, in Utah and he like w- went to say hey I want to go to the law library so I can read some stuff and he jumped out like a two story window he was on the run for like three in, or four days in handcuffs didn't he yeah I think, I think so was. And he, they actually made a movie with Zac Efron just recently about that uh, about him uh, it was interesting but uh, he, he so they recaptured him eventually he was on the run for a couple days and uh, when, uh, so eventually a call comes out that he, you know, was found guilty. When the jury read the verdict, uh, he had his back turned to the jury. Uh, and then when they read, say, you're guilty, he stood up and, and told them, you can tell the jury that they're wrong. And uh, the judge was said, young man, you know, I'm so, this is, you know, disgusting that you would do this. He's like, you have a very bright mind. If you would have stayed on the right path, I would have enjoyed working with you in the court system. You're a very smart young man, but what a shame that you've decided to do this with your life. And later, uh, before he got the electric chair uh, in 1989, he confessed to killing 30 more people. Uh, And then some speculate that he has even killed more than 100 people. And so, and, and and you probably have have seen the footage of him, you know, before he's ex- executed. Oftentimes, when they do these like last minute confessions, uh, it's like literally minutes and hours before the execution, and they're like, "Tell us where the bodies are. Tell us, you know." And he's like, "Well, I don't know." And he was he just divulged all this stuff like the day of his execution, because uh, he knew at that point there's nothing else to lose. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen the the video of him. It seems like every youth leader that I ever had in church growing up was like, watch this video of Ted Bundy saying that the reason why he became a serial killer was because he saw pornography. And it's like, if you see pornography, you too will become a serial killer and and murder and (laughs) torture all these women. It's like, oh my gosh, I'll never, I swear. (laughs) So uh, that was kind of a a, a weird manipulation tactic that I I felt like was uh, perpetuated. (laughs) That... uh, was and in his case, with his mind, maybe I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but uh, you know, definitely, I would say that. What you think about it just like this way? Back in 1979, how much pornography could he actually have access to compared to today? Yeah. If that was a true assumption, and how much today like, we would have serial murderers all over the yes. place? <laughs> and yeah, especially the and and maybe that the lengths that you had to go to 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 really. Get, get, get stuff like that. I mean, yeah. well, maybe that proved more of, okay, this person is willing to go above and beyond for yeah, I think something that might be, that's... That might be more... That might be taboo true. or whatever. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, interesting trial. One of the most watched of all history. Imagine, you know, we've been watching this Johnny Depp trial. Imagine having this, but like a serial killer represent himself and you're like, man, that guy's kind of likable, you know, and he's he's kind of funny and he's... The way that he acts and... 
he can't be guilty. Someone like that, you know, it yeah. could be my neighbor or, or a friendly guy. Weren't there like tons of women that were like all over him and saying like, oh, you know, we, we want to have your babies. And he had like this whole fanfare of people, I think, that were on his side. I think a lot side. of serial killers do have uh, fan bases like that. Yeah. I mean, look at Stephen Avery, dude. He he was in jail and someone, some fan reached out. Oh, I love you, Stephen. That's from... yeah. That's from a Netflix show. If you guys haven't seen it, what was that? Making the murderer. Making a murderer. Yeah, that was wild. If you haven't seen that, go check it out. Yeah. Interesting. What's your, what, I know you have. Uh, at least yeah. One so, or two I, more. so, so I had one more. Um, this was an interesting one. This was from. This one's called Dred Scott versus Sanford, eighteen fifty-seven, and so uh, Dred Scott and Harriet Scott, they were slaves. They were uh, uh, African-American slaves, and they filed uh, lawsuits for their freedom in April of 1846. So they filed these claims against their owner, who was uh, uh, Irene Emerson. Irene Emerson. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Who was their master, basically, uh, stating that Missouri statutes, number one, allowed any person of color to sue the wrongful enslavement, and number two, that any person taking taken to a free territory is deemed free and not a re-enslaved, uh, and not be re-enslaved upon re-entry into a slave state. So if you had a slave and you took him into a free state, he was free according to the law, and you couldn't re-enter a slave state and say, oh, now you're a slave again. Um, so they kind of said those those two clauses within the law. Um, uh, during this time, <clears throat> during this time, Dredd and his wife Harriet lived uh, in three different territories: Illinois, Wisconsin, um, and, which were actually free states at the time, but they were still slaves. Um, and so they they had this lawsuit, and unfortunately, the court ruled against them in eighteen forty seven. Uh, and a retrial was called after that. Uh, a se- in a second trial, Scott returned in 1850, and he was actually, him and his wife, their family, was granted their freedom. So they were granted their freedom. Um, but Irene Emerson, right, appealed the the court, right, and the case actually went to the Missouri Supreme Court that actually reversed the decision and Dredd and Harriet were once again pulled back into slavery. Really? Yeah, which wow. was interesting because they reversed the, the, the sub- Missouri Supreme Court reversed the ruling of the smaller court, um, which was kind of interesting. So Dredd and his family, again, fought for their freedom over the next decade. Um, and it actually gained huge media attention from a lot of high-powered lawyers and politicians um, and uh, kind of abolitionists at the time. Um, the courts actually never had a formal ruling at the end on a Dredd uh, versus uh, Sanford, which was the, um, you know, the, this, the, the name of this court case. But the Scots actually won their freedom by Irene Emerson actually got remarried to a U.S. Congress uh, uh, to U.S. Uh, 
congressperson who was yeah who was an abolitionist uh-huh. and was embarrassed of uh owning slaves and so didn't want to own any slaves and so uh Emerson actually sold the uh the Scots Dredd and his wife back to their original owner who was named uh Taylor Blow and he actually ended up just letting him go in 1857 and said, oh, you guys are free. Really? Yeah. So <laughs> just what a wild ride. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, really interesting kind of, um, I don't know, fueled some of the, the, you know, the wrongfulness of slavery at the time and, and a lot of uh, people that were against it. And, um, you know, obviously it was a, terrible practice and just well, miserable yeah. conditions for those involved well, but it was kind of cool before you, it was kind of cool to see someone that was kind of fighting back right and legally, in this case yeah. legally fighting back and saying this isn't right you know especially in using the law to educate themselves and to say you know according to the law it says this and this and this you know this isn't sh- how it should be I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. I think that, you know, they they were probably the tip of the spear uh, for change, you know. And then you've got, you know, after that, all the way up until the 1950s and 60s where you've yeah. got people still fighting the law, still fighting the case. So, uh, very interesting. I think you had one more small one about the Miranda rights. Yeah, so uh, this guy, so this was uh, Miranda versus Arizona, 1966. Um, and this is like, if you've ever watched, you know, the TV show and the person says, did you read him his Miranda rights? It's like, if you've ever been read your Miranda rights. Yeah. Or maybe you've even been read. Yeah. Tell us about that. We're, we'd be interested to have you on the podcast. (laughs) Um, so it's kind of interesting. It's like, uh, you know, I, I should have pulled him up so we could read some of them, but you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to, to an attorney. You You cannot afford one. One will be appointed. Did you ever see uh, 22 jump street? He's like, yeah. you have the right to be an attorney, <laughs> and the, and the guy's like, the the chief police chief is like, uh, in Twenty Two Jump Street, these two cops, they're kind of like beat cops. That you know, one of the, one of them is really not that smart, uh, Shannon Tatum, yeah, yeah. and he's like, do you even know the Miranda rights? And he's like, yeah, you have the right to be an attorney. And the the police chief goes, did you just say you have the right to be an attorney? <laughs> and his partner goes, well, you do have the right to be an attorney, <laughs> Jonah Hill. Uh, but that's funny. So basically what happened was this guy was, uh, he was arrested, 1966. And he was, um, he was charged with kidnapping and rape. He actually conv- confessed to these crimes and even uh, signed a written statement um, after being interrogated by the police that he, that he did it. But the thing is that he was interrogated without his rights to a lawyer being disclosed. So they never told him before they interrogated him that you can have a lawyer present. And so um, the statement was used ultimately in trial and his signature and everything else, and it got him convicted. Well, the Supreme Court found that Miranda's statements could not be used against him in trial because the police obtained them unconstitutionally. And thus it violated Miranda's Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 
because they never said that you could have a lawyer present. Um, yeah. and, and you have the right to remain silent. Basically, they just brought him in and said, you know, what did you do? And blah, 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 blah. And just started, you know, Brendan, yeah. Brendan dassing him. Yeah, exactly. Bullying him into a, a coerced. Well, in the case of Brandon Dassey, which is he the, was young, Avery, he was younger and coerced a, a confession because he was a young kid. Yeah. Um, I want to put the paper in front of you and I want you to write down exactly how you killed her. Uh, okay. We're going to be in here for four more hours if you don't do that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was coercion and really, I mean, he did it, but he actually got off because they didn't do it right. They didn't follow the procedures. And so wow. now it's, uh, now it's Imagine like, having that guy as a neighbor. <laughs> oh yeah, seriously. <laughs> so, um, the decision changed the legal system forever and led, uh, kind of other court cases, um, due to law enforcement's failure to read the individual, what they call now Miranda rights. Um, so it, it, it's very important and you'll see in, uh, it's, it's very harped on even like you see some of these videos of people that are being arrested and stuff like that. Like the cops will have, they all have Miranda rights in their pockets and stuff. And they'll, they, well, I got to read this to you before we go, you know, put you in the back of the car before we do this or that. And so, uh, it's just really interesting. It's kind of some, it's another one of those things. It's kind of a technical loophole, I guess that, you know, I, I don't know, maybe he turned his life around and became a great guy. But, I mean, kidnapping and rape, that's pretty bad. So. <laughs> yeah. They probably got him for something else down the road. But uh, just plant evidence on him or something, you know. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's that's wild. That's interesting how that came from. I, thought, I, would, I would have thought it was well, well before the 60s, but you said late 60s, right? Yeah, 66. Hmm. Well, uh, that was uh, essentially what all we had for today. These court cases are wild. Uh, there's so many interesting things out there. I know I watched the entire Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, yeah, me too. That was very interesting. Uh, lots of inf- information came out of that. And very interesting to see how lawyers kind of uh, try to prove their point or true that prove their narrative throughout a whole conversation or in every interview and in every question that they have. They're trying to prove a certain narrative. Or they're trying to trick you, or they're trying to wear you down, or they're trying to use yeah. uh, just different tactics that are... Or disprove you. Yeah. I remember it was in the Zimmerman trial where one of Trayvon Martin's friends was up on the stand, and the guy was asking her, you know, uh, asking her a bunch of questions, but of questions, and she wasn't answering. He's like, do you understand English? And she's like, I don't understand you. And like, she got all pissed off. And people were like, whoa, this lady's kind of kind of nuts. And then maybe we shouldn't believe anything she has to say. Yeah. So that's what they're if trying to do. If you can prove that somebody lied before, then why wouldn't they lie again? Yeah. Or if you can prove that somebody is off the handle, then we can't trust them. You know, it's can't just trust their testimony. Yeah. yeah. So it's very, lots of interesting tactics. That, and when you watch it, uh, these trials, it's, it's very fascinating to see the, how our legal system works. Yeah. So if it don't fit, you must acquit. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all we had for you. Uh, hopefully, we can uh, apply some of these tactics and some of these things that we learned, maybe to our own lives, and stay out of the courts if we can. Yeah. At least, at least criminally. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. So uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and build that creed together, guys. All right. Let's do it.